0: Hi, this is Chelsea Pumpkins, editor of Ah, That's What I Call Horror. And you're listening to the HP Lovecast podcast. Enjoy.
1: Hello and welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, where we collect brief interviews by creators with new or upcoming projects. We'll open up the guests reading an excerpt from their project and then follow with the interview proper. Transmissions posts on the last day of each month. I'm Nicholas Dayak, I'm a pop culture scholar of Peplum films, industrial music horror studies, and I'm the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland.
0: And I am Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on horror, fantasy, and spy genres. Nicholas and I co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarlane.
1: So this episode's transmission is with
0: Angela Sylvain. Angela had originally appeared on
1: the HP Lovecast podcast way back in June 2021. It was a short form interview that we talked about her novella, Chopping Spree. Well, we're delighted to have Angela return to the show to talk about her debut novel, Frostbite, which is slated to be published by Dark Matter Inc. uh, on October 10th.
2: Welcome, Angela. A bowl-shaped crater at least 12 feet in diameter had been blasted into the ground, revealing the dirt beneath the packed layers of ice and snow. In the center of the crater sat a boulder-sized rock, faint wisps of smoke still rising from its surface. Whoa. Sitting down, Raylene let her feet dangle over the rim of the crater. A faint heat seeped through her jeans. The projectile must have been blazing hot to burrow such a deep hole in the frigid ground. She slid down the slope and approached the rock. The mottled surface reflected the sheen of the full moon, its color seeming to shift from gunmetal silver and deep purple. A hissing sound from inside the object, and Raylene moved closer, reaching out with one trembling gloved hand. Tightness filled her chest as she considered the immenseness of the universe, a universe where she was no more than an insignificant blip of life. Not exactly a cheerful thought, but a thrill of excitement filled her at being the first person to witness this celestial object up close, to bask in its enormous power. The hiss from inside the object rose in pitch like a blazing hot kettle reaching a boil, and she froze, her fingers hovering inches away. Her eyes watered from the bite of the bitter wind, and she blinked away the ice crystals forming on her lashes, gaze fixed on the rock. A thunder crack sounded, and the thing ruptured, splitting into two neat halves. With a yelp, she stumbled backward and fell, landing painfully on the hard ground. The inside of the object looked much like the outside, that same mottled metallic rock. Reline climbed to her feet, eager to touch the thing, to claim it somehow, though her brain argued that that may not be the best idea. She stopped when thick black liquid welled from the pores inside the rock, filling the air with the scent of burned motor oil. The stuff moved slowly, not dripping or pooling like a normal liquid, rather creeping along the cleaved surface. The cold air is freezing the stuff, she told herself, until the rivulets hit the exposed dirt and skittered across the ground in a web-like pattern. Raelene gasped and backed up before the sludge hit her boots, slipping but managing to stay upright. She watched as the gunk stopped and seeped into the frozen soil to disappear. The wheeze of her rapid breathing echoed in her ears as she crept backwards, eyes locked on the fallen star. The scent of burnt oil singed her nose as the last of the black sludge slithered from the rock and sunk into the earth. No evidence of the stuff remained. Beneath her feet, the ground rumbled, and she extended her arms to keep her balance. An aftershock from the impact, she thought? A high-pitched shriek like that of a wounded animal swelled from beneath the ground, mixing with the whistle of the bitter wind, and she cringed. Well, shit, she said trying to convince herself this whole situation was more funny than terrifying. Can't imagine I'm getting my wish now. We are joined this evening by
1: Angela Sylvain, a repeat uh, interviewee from HP Lovecast podcast. Uh, She was on before to talk about her debut novella, uh, Chopping Spree, but now she is back to talk about her debut novel. Frostbite. So Angela, we are excited to have you back. It's good to see you. How are you?
2: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It's always an absolute pleasure chatting with you too. So you have, uh, it's September now,
1: next month, your debut novel Frostbite comes out. So we are excited to talk about it and also congrats in advance. Thank you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Frostbite? What happens in this novel of yours?
2: Sure. So it's a 90s sci-fi horror comedy. So lots of genres (laughs) all mashed together. And it's about a small town in North Dakota that gets hit by a meteor, which infects the hibernating prairie dogs with alien worms. And the main character, Raylene, she's a recent high school graduate that's been forced to defer her college plans in order to stay home and take care of her mom, who is suffering from dementia. And she and her best friend, Nate, team up to stop the alien invasion while also battling a doomsday cult that has interpreted this whole meteor landing as a sign that Judgment Day has arrived.
1: I got to say that the the aliens, because uh, there's imagery in the book where, you know, the poor prairie dogs, you know, pass away or whoever gets infected, you know, the, they slither across the eye. I remember a couple years ago, it was Gilmel del Toro. He had his vampire series. I think it was called like. The Strain or something? Yes, i like, read the that. The advertisements, yeah. from, like people with their eyes and like worms
2: coming out of their eyes. Yes. Oh, oh, I can't do eye. Uh, no. <laughs> Agreed. That's why, that's probably part of why I landed on it because I find it so creepy. And I think sometimes aliens are larger than life characters, right? And so this idea of like a little tiny alien, you can't even hardly see, uh-huh. except for this little slithering thing across the white of your eye is very creepy to me. So I agree 100%.
1: <laughs> I agree too. Eyes I, I, I can't do. I'm the one of the only people that I can go to the dentist and they will file away and drill away and I'm happy as a clam. But if I go to the optometrist, like here, let me puff some air in your eyes so we can see what happens. Nope, nope, nope. I'm done. And now <laughs> cat, alien worms in the eyes. So nope, I, by horror. Which is weird because I love Italian films. And if you watch Lucio oh. film, it's all it's about... Hysteria,
0: st- right? Yeah, they're all yeah. about stabby in the eyes. Yeah.
2: Very <laughs> Argento does so much eye stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. So have to ask, got to tell us, what's the catalyst for frostbite?
2: Yeah, so this actually originally started as a short story. Um, I was working on some kind of call that wanted earthbound science fiction. And so I came up with this idea of the meteor landing. And once I started writing it, I could tell it was a bigger story. It was not going to be a short story. And I've also been wanting to do more horror comedy. That's just a good fit for me and something i wanting to been wanting to embrace so I thought this would be a good way to really lean into that since alien infested prairie dogs is a pretty silly concept you know it's like ripe for comedy it's more of a creature feature um so after kind of thinking that all through and what I wanted to do with it I expanded it first into a novella and it was actually the novella that was accepted by my publisher dark Matter Inc but my editor rob strongly encouraged me to turn it into a no- a novel to expand it he left the choice up to me he said you know we're going to we love it we're going to publish it either way but i really want you to think about making this longer because i think there's more story here and he was absolutely right once I started kind of planning what that outline would look like, I realized I would be able to do so much more with the characters and the town and just make the story so much bigger um, that I'm really happy I did that. And now I think it's kind of reached its potential in that longer format.
0: As a follow-up question, because you, you took uh, from a novella to a novel, Um, what was that process? Did you find it to be a lot of work or was it kind of an easy progression or transition from novella to novel?
2: Yeah, it was basically just a matter of kind of like breaking down the elements of the story. So um, I looked at it from a couple of options. I could have just kept the novella as basically act one or the first half of the book and then gone from there. Mm -hmm. but actually when looking at the story, it didn't really make sense to do it that way. So I really kind of broke it apart and decided what belongs in this, you know, kind of setting up the world and what does everything look like, what belongs where we're crescendoing and sort of um, reaching the climax. So I kind of chunked out parts and kept them and then cut a few things and filled in everything in between. So, it did work out pretty well for me to kind of use it as a framework and see what am I missing as far as elements that are going to make the story work.
1: Mm -hmm. Great. I I do got a a slight follow-up because, you know, uh, bloodthirsty, rabid, mutated uh, prairie (laughs) dogs. sounds absurd on paper, but I have to remind people, the 70s gave us Night of the Lepus, which is- Giant rabbits attacking everyone. So yep. you can do that. You could do uh, you know, <laughs> evil crown chucks and, and you're perfectly fine.
2: And I don't know. I think those um those little animals are so innocent and small, you don't think of them as dangerous. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of a good unexpected thing to turn into some version of a monster, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Unless you've uh, seen Caddyshack and you're Bill Murray, then
2: yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> nice groundhogs and prairie dogs too. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: So, frostbite takes place in North Dakota, and that's where you grew up. So, we got to ask, you know, how much of frostbite is, you know, kind of true to real life for you?
2: Well, you heard it here. This is based on real events. No, uh-huh. I'm just kidding. It's not. <laughs> um the weather is very true to north dakota i really wanted to capture like what that those winters felt like and that r- real cold that you live in for 6 months of the year essentially so that's definitely based in reality and although the town of demise isn't real i pulled a lot of inspiration From my hometown and the areas around there, Um, I actually grew up in a trailer park, Mm -hmm. much like the one the main character Raylene lives in that had a field of prairie dogs and gophers behind it. So that's really like was my childhood reality, my entire childhood up through when I left for college was lived in a trailer in a very wintry setting with these prairie dogs out there, although they were much less deadly you know they weren't really like vicious prairie dogs they were very cute <laughs> so so that's totally fake but
1: you know though, some of the the best horror out there is that winter based horror that really plays a good part of it like uh i'm thinking what's 30 30 days of night mm-hmm. yes love like, that one yeah and uh john carpenter's this you know the thing, and yes. although it's not a horror film, but Whiteout, I suppose. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something a little
0: like, a and thriller thing. suspense. Yeah, but
2: yeah. I is- love that wintry horror. I think it just is like a whole vibe. Mm-hmm. It's almost like another component you're fighting is the, it, cold the cold, because it places a lot of limitations on you. You know, mm-hmm. and a certain amount of danger. It's not like you can just hunker down outside or something like that. Um, you know, and I think, you know, the other thing I was thinking about that sort of comes from reality that I tried to capture was the culture and demeanor of North Dakotans. Mm -hmm. So that sort of Midwest nice type of personality and that cadence of speaking, I definitely wanted to kind of pull in and I'll often describe this as like a critters or gremlins meets Fargo okay. because it's like a creature feature, but with like small town heart and yes. these, and that's really what people are like there. So that was another piece that kind of, I brought in from my real life experience. Mm-hmm.
1: That, that Fargo accent. y'all. Yeah.
2: You can probably hear once I start, I've been out of North Dakota for a long time now, like 20 years. Um, But when I start talking about it, my accent starts to come out. So
1: I I do got to ask, since you live in Colorado right now, do do you sometimes like during the winters in Colorado, step outside and go, nope, I don't miss this at all and head back in?
2: (laughs) It is so much more mellow here winter-wise. Okay, Honestly, I only step outside and like, You know that scene in Edward Scissorhands where she's spinning beneath Mm -hmm. the snow, the ice coming from the ice sculpture? That's like me in Colorado. I love it here because it is way more temperate and the winters are lovely (laughs) compared to the cold in North Dakota. (laughs) The difference
1: between Christmas, lovely lifetime channel winters. And (laughs) the
0: the, The, the reality. (laughs) The the,
1: the real winters of the Midwest.
0: Exactly
2: right. (laughs)
0: Well, another um, aspect to the real life that you brought in, um, you know, not just North Dakota, but having lived in the the 90s, um, was this a, a fairly easy project to bring in those memories from the 90s? Or did you do quite a bit of research to make sure that you, you know... Did I really remember? Was it really 1992 that that came out? You know, did you do that kind uh-huh. of research?
2: Yeah, probably a little of both. I'm about the same age as the main character. So it was fairly easy to like, just to kind of pull from my memories about what I liked and experienced at the time. But I did also do a fair amount of research on what were the popular movies, the music, the current events, so that I could really make it seem real and rooted in a place. And even early on um, the editor and I talked about the nineties being a character so Mm -hmm. that I had that in my mind of the time and place is really a character. So it has to be well-developed and kind of intertwined with the DNA of the story.
0: Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, the groundhogs and the seventies films that were, you know, definitely B-roll and C-roll, was there a, a decision process as far as like maybe not making it too far back into the 70s and sticking with the 90s uh, because you were more familiar with the 90s? I mean,
2: yeah, I think there was because um, if nothing else, this is my first novel. So let's, let's be real. You want to kind of take on something you feel like you're going to be able to deliver um and I really love nostalgia so I could see doing more of it but honestly an easy place to start is with something I know so I think it just kind of makes sense
0: oh that's a good point yeah mm-hmm. so
1: so kind of going off that you know since this is a I'm gonna call it a retro wave novel you know because there's that uptick in like kind of synth wave and vapor mm-hmm. wave going on right now um actually it's been for a couple years now um but um You know, this, this is a book that's, you know, not mid nineties, but slightly after mid nineties, uh, this era I grew up in as well. So I, I I identify, but, you Mm -hmm. know, um, aside from, you know, just kind of name dropping because there's a little bit of name dropping in in the first uh, couple chapters, you know, to help establish, you know, time and location, um, you know, blockbuster video, I'm going to go in and, you know, rent some movies and you know, all that fun stuff, but aside from that, you know, how do you feel like you go about recreating literary nostalgia, and then, I guess, a a second part of that question is, is, you know, Gen Z, you know, people born after Y2K, you know, this is before their time, so how do you also kind of juggle, you know, hidden nostalgia vibes, but also making this accessible to folks that didn't necessarily live the 90s, and didn't have (laughs) dial-up, (laughs)
2: Yeah, yeah, I think it's, um, ultimately, I think using nostalgia well, or doing kind of a retro wave feel is about giving the reader the experience of the time and place, even if they might not have lived it themselves. So it's kind of about weaving it into the day-to-day life of the characters. Um, and frankly, some of that stuff is kind of funny now in retrospect. So it works well in a horror comedy to talk about like renting videotapes and things <laughs> like that because it's because funny. It's kind of like in, in its nature, it's sort of funny to think back about. Um, and I think as far as making it resonate with younger readers, um, People have a real appetite for nostalgia and retro right now. If you look at the popularity of Stranger Things and Fear Street and all these other things, it's not like it's just people my age that are watching that. It's younger people as well. Um, And maybe that's always the case. Like As consumers of entertainment, I don't know that we always want to live in the world we exist in today right? We don't always want to live in our own reality. We want a bit of escapism and nostalgia kind of offers that opportunity to live in a world that's not the same as yours. Um, but ultimately, I think delivering anything well, wherever you said it is all about characters, frankly, you know, you really have to build strong characters that the reader wants to spend time with, regardless of where the story takes place. Um, so that's probably more important than anything else is like putting them in this world, but making it people that readers want to spend time with.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I, as a side note, cause, uh, this is, this is a weird bridge, but it'll make sense here in a second. I've recently been doing a lot of, uh, research and academic writing on Viking metal. And it, it sounds nothing related, but one of the, uh, papers I came across uh, was talking about, you know, why Viking metal all this stuff, and it said something kind of profound in the idea of you know, you'd look to the past to find solutions to modern day problems. You um, know, I just thought that was kind of a I don't know, a little bit of a profound statement that, you know, maybe that's why, uh, maybe not necessarily rose-colored glasses all the time, but, you know, at some point in our collective history, there was a time that maybe we felt, maybe, maybe it wasn't true, but maybe we felt that something was right. The stars were aligned, everything was good. And maybe by reharnessing that, we can make present day matters a little bit better.
2: <laughs> totally. Good and bad, right? You can like learn, you can kind of recapture the good parts of mm-hmm. times, but also learn from mistakes you've made or things we've done in the past that maybe we need to do better. I think there's absolutely value in that.
0: Yeah. And I think that, you know, the other adage is, you know, um, those that don't learn from history are bound to repeat it. So, you know, Mm -hmm. this is an opportunity to kind of study, you know, um, what we did, right? What what where did we go off the rails um, and how do we use that information? It's kind of like, you know, uh, what is it? Um, Six Sigma. (laughs) <laughs> In a six term into this horror podcast finding the root cause <laughs> oh
1: that's that's terrible that's terrible but i guess our interviews are the same thing as the five whys. oh my god i'm slipping into it quick go go with another question before
0: we start talking okay. business talk yes, we'll we'll rain it back around um so angela you've commented about you know nostalgia retroism, um, and obviously, you know, anybody that's read uh, Chopping Spree and who will read uh, Frostbite, which should be everybody that's listening to this podcast, um, there seems to be, you know, common themes, uh, dangerous cults, retroism, and I I would add nostalgia as well. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, talk a little bit about your interest in those topics and what kind of draws you to them?
2: Sure. I think on the retroism and nostalgia piece, um, part of it honestly is because I've really tried to embrace horror comedy and I've I've really, I love it. It's really fun to write. And for me, those fit, like when you use 80s and 90s pop culture, it, honestly, it's easy to do horror comedy. It's easy for me to write in those times and make it funny and scary because Retroism and nostalgia is all about these memories that are really positive and fun. But in fact, the eras of the 80s and 90s had a heck of a lot of bad stuff that happened and were kind of hidden beneath this veneer of neon and pop music and all these other things, right? So you can use those aspects of nostalgia to create some fun and some comedic elements but by their nature, they're like hiding these horror elements underneath. So it's kind of like the perfect metaphor and it works really well for the genre. Um, And then as far as the cult stuff, I (laughs) absolutely am like obsessed with cults. Um, We've talked a little bit about our educational backgrounds offline and I have an undergrad degree in psychology, religion and philosophy. I've often jokingly said the only thing I'm qualified to do from my undergrad is to become a cult leader. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just one of the things I most enjoyed learning about in college was was cults. Um, I actually had one professor who lost several family members in the Jonestown Massacre And another professor who was in the Doffrey John cult. So I was meeting these people that really had real impacts on themselves or their family members being involved in cults. Um, And that just made me think about how intelligent people can be so manipulated into believing and doing almost anything. Mm-hmm. Um And in the case of Frostbite, it takes place shortly after uh, the Heaven's Gate cult, Hail Bob. Yep. Hail Bob, where they committed suicide and this comet was coming. Right. So you can kind of see these parallels when I started thinking about, OK, how would people in this small town react to a meteor landing? It wasn't really a far stretch to say a doomsday religious group might misinterpret this as something else happening mm-hmm. so it came kind of naturally as the result of a story that the story that was being told but also like I'm obsessed with cults so it was probably going to find its way in there either way
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we have an auteur in the making <laughs>
1: the 90s gave us what Branch Davidians and Hail Bob, and if I recall I, my my memory's a little gray on this but you know, Hale uh the the Heaven's Gate folks were like one of the first like I'm going to say '90s cults in that they embraced the internet. They used the internet to like get their word out and yeah for stuff.
0: recruiting. Yeah. yeah, that's right.
1: Right, right in that wave. Um, uh, Angela, I I do want to ask real quick. This is a weird side question, but have you ever heard of the video game called Sagebrush?
2: i've heard of it but i must admit i'm not much of a gamer so i've never played Um, it
1: i recommend it it's done in a retro style so it looks like a 90s playstation one game but you're an ex-member of a cult who goes back to their compound that they escaped from it's been burnt down and you're just kind of like reliving your time being in the cult finding notes and stuff i mean it's there's like no enemies it's like not like a first person shooter or mario or something like that but it is a very interesting take on cults in that you know you play the role of a former cult person and Mm -hmm. it unwinds like why you join this cult and how you know you get like sympathetic for it buy into it and Mm -hmm. everything i guess it's more of a visual novel in that sort of regard that's kind of first person-y but it looks like minecraft
2: <laughs> i relevant. love it i love that concept it sounds very cool
1: yeah when i saw all the cults and stuff in this uh in this uh book i immediately thought of chopping spree because of they had the the, the coat uh, that the cult for a plutocracy where they worship a guy for you know economic game. but angela so we, we've talked about uh, a little bit earlier how you know there's a horror comedy there's a mixing of genres in here um, within frostbite it seems like there's also a mixing of like kind of two horror subgenres uh first of them is like the crashing meteor you know the you know uh, the blob was probably like you know the first like filmic version of that but you know since then we've got like slither blob 88 uh, uh, deadly spawn and stuff like that you know that's all very lovecraftian and that color out of space type of uh, vein we also have An animals run amok, that very post-Jaws in the 70s, where every animal at that time was out to get you, whether it's a shark or a rabbit or something else. So I got to ask, you know, do you have an affinity toward these genres at all? Or was it just kind of happenstance that this is the way it played out?
2: Oh, for sure. Particularly anything B-movie. I mean, I really grew up watching kind of B-horror movies as a kid. And so creature features and those kind of B-horror movie tropes are something that I feel like I just have internalized and are really comforting to me. Um, You mentioned Slither. Mm -hmm. That's a total comfort movie for me. I I will watch that every day. Um, It's wonderful. So absolute inspiration there on the meteor side. And then as far as the kind of animals running amok or creature features, I really was inspired by critters, by gremlins, all of those kind of things. And then even just sort of the space element of meteor landings it wasn't exactly a meteor but killer clowns from outer space (laughs) you can't leave that out of any discussion of like a wacky space origin creature movie um there's just so many great examples that are wacky that are just extra levels of wacky and at the end of the day i really wanted to write a book that was fun to read you know, like scary too, and plenty of sad, help heartfelt moments with people that felt like real characters, but also a fun, wacky experience for the reader that they would enjoy. So all those kind of subgenres, I think, just lend themselves well to that. And obviously, growing up with them and internalizing them, it just kind of became their framework for this whole thing.
1: We're we're big uh, slither fans in this uh, household over here. Uh... I think whenever we watch it, the, the scene towards the end where uh, Nathan Fillion has the, the grenade in his hand, but it gets slapped out and, like, rolls into the pool. And he has this, like, look on his face of, like, oh, oh, crap. You know, that was supposed to be his big moment. And he flubbed it up. <laughs> we We howl every time at that one scene. I mean, I think it's just probably because it's nathan Fillion, you know doing nathan Fillion at that scene but uh, so, yeah, it's, great. it's
2: perfect <laughs> it's like the hero just messes it up in the end which actually makes them so much more endearing and not to spoil anything but you do get a little bit of that at the end of frostbite too so you, there's a little bit of a reference there that you might enjoy <laughs> So
1: we've talked a lot about the textual aspect of *Frostbite*, but we got to we got to ask a question about the cover because the cover is awesome. It looks like you know that kind of classic Star Wars '80s pose where you know the characters are all in front and there's a lot of cool stuff. Happen. Star Wars are Indiana Jones, basically Lucas film back in the day, but you know the the. The Mister Plow that's ran over, you know, uh, prairie dogs that's covered in gore. The the, the bison on fire. The gas station, everything. And of course, it's very purpley, so it's very, you know, neon eighties, slight nineties vapor ish So, gotta ask, you know, about the The cover and working with the cover artist was this something you had input on something you had final say was it something that was just shown to you like oh my god you nailed it off the bat this is great uh we, we got to hear about the genesis of the cover as you know it
2: yeah I honestly feel so lucky to have such a rock star cover I agree 100 percent it's so much better than anything I ever could have envisioned in my mind, that um, the artist is named Eric Hibeller And the publisher found him, he actually works, um does all kinds of different work, but some of his work he does is for Disney.
0: Okay.
2: So we had originally talked about wanting the cover to look like a movie poster, because the vibe of the book is is a movie kind of vibe, right? Action packed. The pace is very much like something you might see in a movie theater and that's how it reads. So kind of the task given to the artist was to do something that looked like a movie poster, like a Lucasfilm or like an Amblin Entertainment kind of a vibe, like, you know, cast of characters think goonies indiana jones adventures in babysitting those type of things so that's sort of the um like task we gave and he just completely delivered on it and it was really fun too because i got to be part of the process ongoing we did multiple meetings with the artist where he would show versions of kind of what he was thinking and um, let me give input and then be able to make changes. And then we kind of progress slowly toward the final cover and he just absolutely nailed it. It was a wonderful experience.
1: I, I'm so glad that worked out so awesome because it is a, it is a legit fun cover. It's a very professional looking cover. It, you know, it looks uh, uh what's the one I'm looking for. Like, you know, a million bucks, you know, like uh, not, not, sounds bad i don't mean it sound bad but you know the the story is definitely an homage to you know creature features and b film but how do you get folks to to uh see those films you have a you know a rad poster for it and totally absolutely so so yeah so so frostbite is the package on you know both texturally and cover artly that's not a real word but i'm going with it (laughs) (laughs) it's a
2: word now
0: (laughs) we we said it here (laughs)
2: <laughs> that's right you heard it here first <laughs> so
0: um angela you you mentioned earlier and we had a discussion a little bit about you know moving from a novella to a novel um what would you say is the most challenging aspect of writing your debut novel and more importantly is there any advice that you would give to other authors working on their first book
2: I'd say the most challenging part is honestly kind of like shifting from hobby type of writing to professional writing. So I've written and sold dozens of short stories, but with those, I could always kind of wing it Right? You don't really necessarily have to have a plan going in, or at least I don't. And you can write them a lot faster. There's not this huge commitment of time with a short story. And with a novel, I really had to embrace planning and structure. I had to outline and really understand story structure and the beats as far as what needed to happen where. And I also had to kind of stick to a rigorous writing schedule. Because once you have a publisher and you have deadlines you have to meet, you know, it's not really a hobby anymore. It's a job and you have to kind of meet those expectations. So that was probably the most challenging shift for me as far as how I write. Um, And as far as advice, I do think for writers that want to go into maybe writing a novel, understanding story structure is important. It's an important place to start. You can learn about the hero's journey or the heroine's journey and read books like Save the Cat, which will give you kind of a head start, which I love because also it has cat in the title. You guys understand this. Um, But it gives you kind of a head start on how to do an outline, how to just kind of structure a story. Um, And keep in mind, this is if you want to tell a story with traditional Western narrative structure which is not right for everyone. It happens to be right for me because I write commercial fiction and I wanted this to read like kind of a fast paced movie. So that approach really works for me. Um, And I'd also say to those trying to write a novel to just stick with it. You know, novels take a long time and it's super easy to give up. And the first draft is going to be hard and it's going to be bad. (laughs) Like almost without exception, Um, but you have to get that first draft on the page before you can fix it and make it into something really great. So it's all about commitment, you know, just saying, I'm going to do it, stick with it and know that we have all been there and thought that we are the worst writer in the world at times and should quit forever. But if you push through that, you're going to end up with something really good
0: i'd say that's very sage advice angela and um it's always good to hear that uh, multiple times um you know uh so i think that was very good uh, advice
1: no i think that is super important i think you know a lot of us in the horror community come from uh you know that that short fiction uh background of oh here's a call for submissions we're looking for stories on this and uh, you know you spend a night or a week or a weekend or whatever hammering out a short story send it off and you know cross fingers for acceptance and you know that that's awesome you know for short stories and stuff but yeah that step up for you know contractual commitment for something longer form i mean yeah i mean cool you're working on a, a big novel but yeah that i could see that as a, a huge uh, shift i i know um I've kind of felt that a little bit when I've gone from like short essay writing to all of a sudden I'm project managing an entire book. All of a sudden it's (laughs) in and, you know, make sure you deliver on deadlines.
2: Yes, exactly right. It's exactly the same. Yeah.
0: So um, we have to hope um, that Frostbite is not your last novel and that you've decided, oh, God, I can't do any more. And that you'll actually have some upcoming news and projects that you uh, would like to share and can share with our listeners.
2: Sure. Yes, I would love to. So Frostbite's out the 10th of October in paperback. And um, we've actually already lined up the voice actress for the audiobook. So I'm happy to report it will be coming out soon on audio in all formats as well, which is super exciting. It'll be my first audio adaptation. So I'm I'm very excited yeah. uh, outside of podcasts and things. Um, and then you mentioned my novella chopping spree, which is currently out of print. Oh, no. Uh, That actually, though, good news, is going to be re-released in 2024 with new scenes added, expanded version, and a new cover. Um, And that's going to come out from Dark Matter Inc. as well. And also, there will be a Spanish translation coming out from Dimensiones Occultas. So, yeah, so I'm super excited about that. And then uh, you asked me, so I'm going to tell you all the news. I also have a, a debut short collection called The Dead Spot Stories of Lost Girls that will be out in May of 2024. That one's not a comedy, so don't going in go into it expecting to laugh. You'll be very sad and upset. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lastly, I am actually working on a sequel to Frostbite, so um, we will have a uh, sequel to frostbite coming out in 2025
1: are you going to call the sequel thaw
2: maybe um (laughs) i haven't figured out a title but i'm i'm still working on it now and it might take place around spring break so i was toying with the idea (laughs) of calling it sunburn it's even good it's even
1: better
0: (laughs) Especially if it's still in North Dakota. <laughs> but
1: I can only assume that the s- spring and summers in North Dakota are extremely mosquito-filled. If it's anything yeah. like summers in Montana.
2: Like the biggest mosquitoes you've ever seen, yes. Exactly. You know what I'm talking about. Montana is the same thing. Yep.
1: Yeah. Wait, wait a second. Are we talking that sequel frostbite might have meteorite, you know, infected mosquitoes going around?
2: Maybe. Or we might take a... We might take a little trip somewhere for spring break so oh. there could be even more different creatures involved we'll see <laughs> <laughs> all right
1: <laughs> <Angela>. <laughs> sorry <laughs> <laughs> all right compose compose this is our outro now so <laughs> so angela again congrats on frostbite coming out next month mm-hmm. we're very excited for you and Oh, we uh, hope it's super successful for you. And I'm glad that your publisher is also picking up Chopping Spree. I i didn't know it was out of print, but I'm glad that it rebounded and is having a mm-hmm. new home with your current publisher. So high five there. And uh, sincerely appreciate you coming on our podcast to hang with us. And we hope everyone checks out
2: Frostbite. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Appreciate you having me.
0: And that concludes our transmissions for this month. This episode's bumper is provided courtesy of Chelsea Pumpkins. Chelsea is the editor of the anthology, Ah! That's what I call horror. An anthology of 90s horror. Which will certainly pair well with Angela's 90s nostalgia novel, Frostbright. We wish Chelsea continued success.
1: So it's Autumn time. We have a little tradition here on HP Lovecast podcast. What we do? Two two years ago, we talked about a little independent film called Mimic, and then last year we talked about Mimic two. Well, guess what, folks?
0: No, are we really?
1: <laughs> there is a Mimic three out there. <laughs> <laughs> so join us in October. We will be discussing Mimic three, and that will drop mid October in addition to our Transmission episode that will drop on the last day of the month. Now, that's upcoming news for the podcast, but we have some uh, project news. Michelle, with a very uh, big project news.
0: Yeah, um, I have been uh, working with Sean Woodard, who is one of our prior guests at Transmissions. He and I are going to be co-editing a book on The Mummy. And we're talking about The Mummy, the 1999 version, but we're actually going to look at the entire franchise as well as Hammer, uh, the Hammer Horror uh, version um, and quite a few others. So um, hope that you'll actually take a look. We'll have a link in the show notes uh, that'll link to the call for chapters. So we'll be looking for an abstract Um, As well as a short bio, um, our deadline for that is December 15th to mummybookproject at gmail.com. But again, take a look in the show notes for the uh, call for chapters so you can get all the the full details about that project. Really excited. Uh, This has been something that um, I've been wanting to do. So I'm very excited to be partnering with uh, Sean as co-editors of this book. Super excited
1: for you. So we have a lot of horror fans out there, and I know a lot of people love Mumby 99, so.
0: (laughs) We do, I
1: for one. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course, you can email us at hplovecast at gmail.com.
0: And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and feel free to explore our archives. We have several episodes up there. Consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books that we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we do have a coffee account. A link is also provided in the show notes. And of course, as always, thank you for listening.